awesome to be with you guys this morning. Super grateful for technology, the fact that we can actually gather together via a screen. So it's good to be with you, even if it has to be virtual this Sunday. We're in this series, oh, and if you haven't met me, my name is Tony. Good to meet you. Uh, and since you're not here and I cannot shake your hand, please reach out to me because I would love to actually be able to say hello, uh, maybe go for a walk, uh, at least do a Zoom call or say hello on the phone. All right, so we're in this series called Messy Church, Merciful God. It's our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 6. So contextually, Paul left Corinth about three years ago, but he's still in contact with the church in Corinth. He goes to, he's, he gets some visitors from Corinth and they give him the dirt on what's really going on. So then he sends a letter saying, hey guys, I want to address some topics. First, chapter 5, he addresses a guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Chapter 6 starts with Corinthians are now uh, having lawsuits against each other. And now in verse 12, he learns that some of the Corinthians are visiting prostitutes. And he's like, all right, guys, uh, we, can't, we can't do this. Now, I want to say something quick before we dive into uh, verse 12. One, one of the things we normally have on a Sunday is we have the adults here and then the kids go into kids' ministry. And that's awesome when you're giving sermons like this. Because we're going to talk about prostitutes. We're going to talk about sexual desire. We're going to talk about all these different things. So if parents, you're in the room with your kids right now and you would prefer them to have a, a G-rated sermon, I would encourage you to give them something else to do. Uh, this is going to be more like PG-13. I'll do my best to keep it totally appropriate, but Paul is going to talk about some stuff that's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. I also want to say that this sermon, as I was writing it, is going to feel a little bit like sermon meets lecture, and it might at times feel a little long, it might feel a little abstract and big picture, and there's a reason for this. Paul's getting at all kinds of really important themes, freedom, the body, sexual desire, sex, how God created us. So we're going to go back to Genesis a lot to anchor us. That's my fair warning. And I'm going to give you a long pause for you parents to decide what you want to do. And now we're going to begin. All right, so as modern readers, it might surprise you that as Paul writes to the Corinthians, that they're dealing with this idea of Corinthians going to visit prostitutes. Like, you know, they walk down the street and you're like, hey, Giannis, uh, you know, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going for a hike. Yeah, I'm going to visit a prostitute. All right, have a good day. Right, as if hiking and visiting a prostitute are two forms of adult entertainment. And there's a reason for this. I think as modern readers, we look at them and are like, whoa, what's wrong with them, you know? But in reality, in the Greco-Roman world, prostitution was way more common than it is today. So more likely what's happening is these Corinthian guys are just reverting back to the old behaviors that they did before Paul arrived in Corinth and said, hey guys, when we practice the way of Jesus, we don't visit prostitutes. Paul now leaves. Now they just start doing what they always did. Now, I know for you, right, this is probably not true, but for me, occasionally, I revert back to old behaviors that I shouldn't revert back to, right? Like, I notice a behavior and I'm like, oh, I think I've thought about this one before. I probably shouldn't do this anymore. Has anyone ever done that? Right? I think we can have a little bit of empathy for the Corinthians. They're simply doing what they previously thought was okay, but they've learned is no longer. So how does Paul start? He knows he needs to address it. And the question is how? I think sometimes we think, you know, like, Paul's just going to, like, go out there and be like, hey, guys, stop visiting prostitutes. It's wrong, right? Check the box and then go on to the next topic. That's not what Paul does at all. He actually tries to get at the root of the issue, which actually I appreciate. I remember when I first, when God first encountered me, I remember it was the end of my freshman year, and I remember I started my sophomore year, and I was trying to learn, how do you practice the way of Jesus? How do I align all of my behaviors now with the kingdom of God, right? Because most of my behaviors, pa patterns, rhythms, habits were not aligned with the kingdom of God. They were aligned with the kingdom of Tony. And now I needed to learn, all right, how do I shift them? I remember it being incredibly hard. I remember this was especially true with sexual desire. 
Sexual desire is super powerful. I remember at our campus, we had these like little groups kind of within our Christian fellowship. And they called them accountability groups. They were kind of like uh, recovery groups, kind of like healing groups, prayer groups, friends that would meet together to ha- help each other practice the way of Jesus and align their lives with him. I remember one time we created this friendly competition, kind of like a little positive peer pressure. And we said, all right, we had these agreed, these are the agreed practices of what it looks like to follow Jesus and be in his kingdom. The first person who breaks one of these agreements has to go in the cafeteria, get a dark colored pie, probably like blueberry or some dark berried pie, find a high table, climb on said table, take said pie, smash it into their face and say, not my will, but your be done. I was 21, right? This is kind of like, this is how we challenged each other. And I still remember how that pie felt in my face. All these years later, what I really remember is not just sort of being the one who had to stand on the table and smash my face, but I really remember is how hard behaviors change, how long it takes. And this is especially true with sexual desire and what we do with it. It's so powerful. What's true for me is it has taken me years of healing, forming new habits, starting to understand why I was doing what I was doing in order to change and align all of my life more and more with the practices of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And part of me wonders why, maybe this is why Paul doesn't start with, hey, stop visiting prostitutes. Instead, right, he starts with the roots of the issue. The first root he deals with, this idea of freedom. So in Corinth, the value for freedom is super high. In part, this is because of the Greek Stoics, part of their culture. So their culture had a high value for freedom. Basically, the wise man could do whatever he wanted. I'm wise. You know, don't tell me what to do. Kind of a vibe. Like, I'm smarter than you. I know what's good and what's bad, right? That's what's part of Greek culture. The more knowledge, the more freedom. So the more smart you thought you were, the more free you thought you could be. It's also encouraged by Paul, right? Because Paul knew there were these traveling guys from Jerusalem that were trying to convince all of the early churches that they needed to follow every aspect of the Old Testament law, right? So they'd show up at a place and say, oh, you can't eat that. No, 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 you can't do that. This is Sabbath. These are the specific limitations on what you can and cannot do on a Sabbath. And so Paul told them, guys, you're saved by grace. You don't need to obey all of these different rules. And they took it, and they ran with that. We're free. They even created a slogan. They created this slogan, I am free to do anything. Which is great on one level. It is all by grace. But over time, their value for freedom grows so robust in Paul's absence that they think they can teach out, toss out almost all of the Old Testament moral teachings, including those on visiting prostitutes, which isn't what Paul taught or intended. Second, the Corinthians assumed that the, the material world, including the body, was of very little value. So their view of the world and of material stuff the body, all those things out there, was more aligned with their culture than the biblical narrative. So most or many Greek thinkers taught that the soul was immortal, but the body, ah, it's going to be destroyed. So the Corinthians assumed, hey, we got to value knowledge and spiritual gifts. But what one did with one's body was irrelevant. So as long as I was learning, whether I visited a prostitute didn't really matter. That's just the body. My mind is growing. Maybe in like contemporary church equivalent would be, as long as I'm going to church and singing worship songs, it doesn't really matter if I'm sleeping around or looking at porn or whatever. There's a disconnection. So rather than starting with, hey, don't visit prostitutes, Paul starts with these two underlying issues of freedom and the body. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Now, in Greek, there aren't quotation marks. So if you're looking at your Bible right now, you won't notice, but it is true, all things are lawful for me is the Corinthian slogan. I can do anything I want. Paul is quoting the slogan of the Corinthians, and then he's saying, hey guys, I want to add a little bit of nuance here. Let's add a little nuance to your slogan. All things are lawful for me, but are all things helpful? Now, Paul uses this word helpful a few times in his letter to the 1 Corinthians. One of the really important times is in 1 Corinthians 12. It's applied to the body and the spirit. He says this, To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Right? You're all given the spirit and spiritual gifts to serve the common good. Common good is the exact same word here as helpful. You're given the Spirit so you can be helpful. And Paul is saying, yeah, you're free, but the freedom you have should serve the common good. The thing is, right, in our culture and back then, freedom could be understood a few different ways. Freedom could be understood as the freedom to do whatever you want, the freedom to do, or often, right, the freedom for, the freedom to serve. Here, Paul is trying to clarify that Christian freedom is the freedom to serve, the freedom for giving our life to the kingdom versus just the freedom to do whatever we want. As I was preparing this message, I thought of a story when I was um, in Lagos, Portugal, and I was grabbing dinner one night. And I went to this place, it was a pasta place, and went there, and I go in and I realize, oh, if I eat four bowls of pasta, I get a free dinner. But don't think bowl as in like the salad bowl you have at the end of the plate. Think like mixing bowl of like massive mixing bowl. If you eat four of these, free dinner. And I was like, done. I am going to eat four of these. I got three and a half in. And all I remember from that night is laying in the town square in Lagos, Portugal, flat out on my back because my stomach hurt so badly. I'm sure all the people walking by thought that I had been in the bar too long, but in fact, I had just tried to eat my way to a free dinner. My point is this. We can do lots of stuff. We're free to do lots of stuff. Not everything we do is helpful. Certainly, me trying to eat my way to a free dinner was not helpful for me. I laid in pain in the center of a town square for hours trying to recover. I think Paul here is trying to remind the Corinthians that their freedom should be used in such a way to help, to serve for the good. And then he connects it in the next verse, in verse 13, to devaluing of the body. Paul writes, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul now is talking about the body, the other underlying root issue in Corinth. And he begins by, again, quoting their slogan, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, God will destroy them both. That is a Corinthian slogan. That's what they would say to each other, like, hey, food is for the stomach, you know, whatever, I, I lose track of it. Anyway, they didn't think that God cared about the material world, right, including their bodies. Now, he's just going to destroy it anyway. Who cares? Food and sexual appetites, they're both just hungers. It doesn't matter. Now, at this point, in order to appreciate what Paul is doing, we need to take a little tour to the book of Genesis, specifically the first chapter and two in Genesis, because a lot of Paul's theology of the body actually comes from Genesis 1 and 2. So this might feel like a little bit of a detour, but believe me, this is super important because one of the most important things about this chapter is Paul's view of the body and a theology of the body for the New Testament. First, Paul tells them that their thinking has gone off in a few ways. First, they've misunderstood the value of God's good material creation. Right in Genesis, what do you find? Days one through six, God makes stuff, and then what? He says, 
after each day, man, that's good. Tov, that is good stuff. And at the end of day seven, he looks out of all of it, the sum total, and he says, this is tov ma'od. This is really, really good. Second, the Corinthians have not only misunderstood the value of creation, but they've also misunderstood the body. So the Corinthians have assumed the body is kind of like a letter inside of an envelope. Right? You get a letter in the mail. My kids get letters every so often now, and they're like super excited. What do they do? They rip open the, the envelope. It gets like thrown behind their head or whatever, and then they read the letter because the point of the card, of the envelope, of the mail, right, is to read the letter. And the Corinthians kind of view the human body like a letter inside of an envelope. But this isn't actually the Christian understanding of the human person at all. In Genesis 2-7, when God forms Adam, it says this, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. All right, so the text says that God forms the man. The man is the dust. Then he breathes life into that dust, and the dust comes to life. Now, we know this because the first person's name is Adam, which is derived from the Hebrew word Adamah, meaning dirt. Adam isn't a soul creature. He's a dirt creature animated by the breath and life of God. He isn't an envelope with a letter in him. He's more like a postcard, right? You can't take the message and the sort of sending content of the postcard apart. They go together. Same like the human person. You can't separate in body and spirit, letter and envelope. It's a postcard. Third, the Corinthians really don't understand the future destiny of created things or creation. They assume that that ah, doesn't really matter. God's just going to destroy it all. Who cares? But they forget. Jesus, when he's raised from the dead, what does he have? a body. He isn't a spirit floating around. He isn't Casper the ghost floating around. He is an embodied being. This is why Paul says in verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead with a body, so we are not spirits that are going to float on clouds for eternity playing harps like some Renaissance picture. I remember once I gave a sermon on embodiment and how that affected eternity and these things. And I remember someone came up to me after the sermon and they're like, you know, I've had a lot of problems with my body. Health stuff, discomfort. Are you telling me that I'm going to have this broken body when I go into eternity? Because I have to say that doesn't sound very good. And I realized in that moment I hadn't clarified. No, no, no. You don't go into eternity with the broken body that you have. Just as we don't carry sin into eternity with God and His kingdom, so we don't carry all the misfunctions and messed up brokenness of our body into eternity. Our body is good when we are with Jesus. And this makes sense because when Jesus returns, He isn't going to destroy everything. Right, when John in Revelation 21 sees Jesus coming on the clouds to earth, he says this, right? I'm going to burn it all to the ground. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that at all. He says, behold, I'm going to make all things new. And what he's saying is not, I'm going to make all new things. He's not going to say, oh, I see this, this tree here, I'm going to make a new one. Forget that one, I'm going to make a new one. No, he's going to make all things new. He's going to renew all the things that he has already made that were declared good at the beginning of creation. He's going to renew them from the brokenness and sin that has sort of gotten in them. He's going to renew the creation he made good in the first place. So in these first two verses, Paul has now addressed the freedom and the body understandings, misunderstandings the Corinthians had, and now he moves into this idea of sex and sexual desire and sexual immorality. 
But before we get there, I just want to say one thing. My impression is that most people who attend church or don't attend church, but maybe are listening this morning, kind of have this feeling maybe, maybe unarticulated, maybe articulated, that the church is kind of like anti-sex. The church is kind of prude. And Paul is kind of like the ambassador of this like anti-sex, kind of prude perspective on sexuality. And before we get into Paul's words about sexual immorality, what he'll call pornea, I just want to say this. Do you remember the first charge that God makes to all of his creatures in Genesis 1? He creates it all good. What's the first thing he tells them to do? I'll read it for you. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All right, prepare to have your minds blown, right? That's Bible speak for have sex. And then he looks out over all that's being done. All the, the procreation that is happening. And what does he say? Tov mode. This is really good stuff. God makes gender and sex between a man and a woman good. This is built actually into the designed order of creation. So Paul isn't a prude. In fact, it is Paul's high view of sex that shapes his counsel to the Corinthians, which really takes focus in verses 15 through 17. This is what he writes. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with him. Okay, to appreciate what Paul is saying here, we need to go back again to Genesis. You're getting a little whiplash? I get it, right? We're going back to Genesis again. Right, so the goodness of creation is striking. You know the first wrong thing with all of creation is? Adam is made alone. Right? So what does he do? He forms Eve. Adam and Eve, male and female. And then Genesis 2.24, we learn that Adam and Eve, when they have sex, they say, the text says they become one flesh. Now this is kind of an ancient way saying they become one flesh. It's an ancient way of saying they become one new person. What this means is that sex, from a biblical perspective, is not something we just do, right? Visit a prostitute, go on a hike. It isn't just adult play or adult entertainment. It's not a momentary act that satisfies a transient desire or natural urge. According to the Scriptures, sex affects who we are. I'd read a book this last week that said that brain scans have shown that people who have sex and then break up with that person experience the exact same neurological impact on their brain as when they break a, mus or break a bone. Break a bone biologically and neurologically, biblically, right? Sex binds us to another person. But I know in our culture, this isn't what we hear. It's like, church, come on, get over it. Why are you guys so stuffy about this? Like, what's the big deal? And yet, I bet you if we did a survey of every person listening this morning, and said, hey, have you ever been hurt by sex or sexual desire in your life? I bet you almost all of us would say that we have. It's estimated right now that between 20 and 40% of all divorces in the United States result from infidelity, right? The ripple effects of adultery within, massive, or within marriage are massive, not just affecting one generation, but often multiple but this is just the obvious tip of the iceberg. Our culture's laissez-faire attitude towards sexuality also has massive impacts 
on our understanding of our own bodies and our image of our body, what we think about our body, because we look at these images and we think, do I measure up? And it creates all this anxiety and worry and stress over our own body image. It creates worries and stress over our own desirability. And when sexuality goes horribly wrong, it leads to terrible abuse within families and within organizations. If you listen to the news, even last week, right, 15 uh, women that work for the Washington Redskins uh, recently just filed sexual, uh, sexual harassment lawsuit just this last week. I mean, we've seen this throughout, right, this last year or two, just all the different, uh, different claims that are being made about sexual harassment in workplaces. And we know, like, if you go into the family stats, how frequent and horrible abuse is within the family. And this is why Christians have always had guidelines about sex and sexual desire and what to do with it. Because the thing is, sex can be wonderful. But because it is powerful, it can also be incredibly destructive. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, hey guys, you know, it's not like a choice between Netflix and visiting a prostitute. It's not one form of adult entertainment or another. Sex affects us in a distinct way. And he says also, right, it's not just a private matter either that affects you and Jesus. He explains to the Corinthians, right, that just as a husband and a wife become one flesh, so believers become one in Christ. So our experience connected to Jesus in the church mirrors the connection between a husband and a wife. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul will dive into this more, but he'll tease out this connection that we are one in Jesus. And he's laying the groundwork here, saying that, hey guys, when you go and visit a prostitute, you're actually moving away from your calling to serve the common good of this body and Jesus when you go and do your own thing with your body. Right? And this becomes even richer when we start looking at how in the Old Testament and the New, Jesus is framed as the, bri- or as the groom of the church, the bride. And you see these metaphors throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets, about how when, when Christians right, go and worship at other, idol- or at other gods, right, what is it called? Adultery. I remember a few years ago, I got this nervous phone call from a husband and a friend of mine. And he's like, had this real nervousness in his voice, and he's like, hey, can we meet? And it's one of those moments when you're on the phone with someone and you're like, I need to listen to this. So I just dropped whatever I had. They came here, and right, they just sort of piled on all this evidence of, um, you know, his wife's affair. And it was this, just this gut-wrenching moment. Because, yeah, she was having sex with this other person, but for him it wasn't like, oh, you just went and had sex with someone, right? It ruined so much of him that day. What the Scriptures tell us is that the emotional impact on God, right? God is affected like a groom is affected Right, when we decide to go our own way when it comes to sexuality. This is why Paul, in verse 18, makes it so clear. He says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul here in verses 18 and 13 is using the same word for sexual immorality. It's called pornea. It's where we get the English word porn, actually. Paul is contextually talking about prostitution right, in Corinth, but it can be used more generally to refer to sexual behavior that is outside the covenant commitment of marriage. Tim Keller has this fun way of saying it. He says this, Sex is, at its core, a God-invented way of saying to another person, 
I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. Which cannot be said, right? Outside the permanent, exclusive, covenantal commitment of marriage. So Paul to the Corinthians is like, guys, run away from pornea. Run away from it. Run away from prostitution. Right? Having sex with a prostitute isn't simply adult entertainment. Right? You're connected to Jesus. And if it wasn't enough already, Paul says this. Hey, guess what? Your body, remember, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In verse 19. This one line alone. If the Bible had nothing to say about the body up to this point in 1 Corinthians, this line alone would dignify the human body. Just as God dwelled in a materiality, right, in the tabernacle and in the temple, so in the New Testament He dwells in a material substance, in you and in me. It's kind of crazy to imagine. Sometimes I, when I'm reading the Old Testament, maybe you relate to this, you like imagine this scene. Maybe like Moses on Mount Sinai. And you think, man, how cool would it have been to stand on that mountain and watch God pass by? You ever thought that? Like how awesome. I bet you if I saw that, man, it would change everything. Right now, sitting on your couch, sitting on your floor, wherever you sit this morning. Take this in. Right this second, you are way closer to God than Moses ever was on Mount Sinai. The Holy Spirit in this very moment indwells your physical being. This is why Paul says, we, let's glorify God with our bodies. It's not just flesh and blood. It's a temple of God's presence. And in his last few lines, Paul returns back to freedom. When he starts with freedom and he ends here, he says, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. This is a redemption metaphor. Right? In the ancient world, the redemption was all about slavery. Someone got sold into slavery, and what do you do? You bought them out. You're bought with a price so that you can be free. But not free just to do whatever you want. You were bought with a price because you were sold into the slavery of sin so that you could serve in the house of the Lord with your freedom. Paul says, glorify God with your bodies. You're free. Because the thing is, our body is connected to our obedience. You cannot sing to God without vocal cords. You cannot serve your neighbor without your hands, your tongues to encourage your neighbor, your feet to move towards your enemy. The body is intimately connected to discipleship and our formation and Jesus' image. Corinthians, stop visiting prostitutes. What you do with your body matters. What you do with your freedom matters. Thank you for hanging in there with me. I know that was a lot of moving pieces, and I want to take a moment now to try and figure out, okay, so how does this now translate? 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote something like this to the Corinthians, and is like, hey, guys, let's deal with some of these root issues. But how does this translate into our everyday life? You're going to work. You're at home. You're married. You're single. You're whatever. Like, any state of relationship, what do, how do we apply this into our everyday life? Well, first, I think it has to start with our bodies. Our culture has a funny relationship to the body. Right? On one level, there's all these health magazines and things out there like, eat the right foods, exercise, like, treat your body well, right? Like, totally literature, there's totally a push on that side. And simultaneously, there is this profound focus on body image. And this focus is actually has nothing to do with honoring the body. It's actually incredibly destructive because it actually communicates a super low value for the body 
It's all about making our idea, our actual physical body fit into an idea of beauty that is sold by marketing companies around the United States and around the world. It does not, God created our bodies. They were already good and beautiful. And now we're trying to align them with an image of beauty that is sold to us and we are willing to hurt our bodies in the process. There's also this super powerful focus in our world around achievement that runs totally contrary to valuing the body. We forsake sleep. We forsake rest in order to achieve things. When the truth is, our bodies need sleep. Our bodies need rest. The truth is, right, even when you get into the church, there's a dualism often at play. I remember when I first uh, started following Jesus, right, I started that first sophomore year, I had these friends trying to teach me, what does it look like to align my life with Jesus and his kingdom? And one of the first things they taught me about prayer is, okay, when you gather before food, this is how you should pray. God, would you bless this food to my body, is what they told me. Now, I didn't realize this until years later, but actually, that very formulation came up in the Middle Ages when Plato's word, which was more like the body is bad, we need to bless the material matter so that it doesn't poison our souls and our bodies, so they would pray for the food. Bless the food, protect me from it. Right, if you go back to the life of Jesus, he never says, bless this food. He says, thank you, God, for this food that you have already blessed when you made it on day one. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, right? He says, thank you. And if you go into Orthodox Jewish communities right now, when do they pray? After the meal. God, thank you so much for this amazing meal. Now, my point is this. Our culture has tons of things to say about the body. So does the church. So what does it look like to glorify God with our bodies? How do we connect our faithfulness to our embodiment? As I was praying about this, I kind of had this idea. I think often we see our bodies like our culture does. Right? So we go, take a shower in the morning, we get up, we see ourselves in the mirror, and very rarely do we say, oh, God, thank you for the gift of my body and how you made me. If you're anything like me, you more have negative thoughts in your head about, you know, how manly you are, how fem feminine you are, whatever. You have these images of how you should measure up, and then you start beating yourself up. What would it look like if we actually took time each day when we saw ourselves in the mirror just to say to God, God, I thank you for the body that you have given me. That God made you. God made me. Not deficient. What if we took that as our dominant narrative rather than all the images and things we hear on the internet, on, on TV, and in the movies? Second, I, I just wonder, what does it look like for us to treat our bodies as a gift from God? Right, if we actually took seriously that your body and my body are temples of the Holy Spirit. You know, I bet if it was a temple, man, you'd sweep that thing out. You know, you'd make sure the candles were lit. Like, you'd take care of the basics, so that people could worship there. What does it look like for you and me to take care of the basics with our body? Sleep enough. Exercise a little bit. Eat food that's going to nourish us. I think sometimes, I'm often talking to people and they're like, why does my prayer life stink? I'm like, how much did you sleep last night? Hey, you didn't sleep. You're expecting to be able to read the Bible and pray without falling asleep? You didn't sleep enough. Like, this has nothing to do with whether you're spiritual or whether God loves you. You did not sleep enough. We disconnect these things, and it's like God made us embodied creatures. How much we sleep matters. Whether we eat food that gives us energy matters. Whether we exercise a little bit matters. 
But what does it look like for you to glorify God with your body? And obviously, like if we're going to talk about glorifying God with our body, we need to talk about what do we do with the desires, particularly the sexual desires that we have. We need to talk about sex and sexuality. Now, as I shared at the beginning of this sermon, I, I just want to say I have a profound amount of empathy for people that are stuck in patterns, in practices, in rhythms where they're not sure what to do with their sexual desire and they feel overwhelmed by it and they're not sure how to move forward. Because what I learned early on is that what we do with our sexual desire is not like a light switch. Someone can't say to you, hey, just do this. And then you're like, okay. You know, it happens every so often. I've seen it happen in my friends' lives and in pastoral experience. But usually, it is a process of unlearning all the behaviors that we learned before and a process of healing. See, the thing is, in American culture, the way that we are taught to approach our sexual desire is not something we learn one day. It's something you have learned most of the days of your life, and you just never knew it. We have to realize that our culture is training us, is forming us. In the same way that the men are just visiting prostitutes, because that's just what everyone does, we do the exact same thing. We're trained and formed into beings that just assume this is what you do with sexual desire. For instance, just as an example, the most searched thing on the internet is the word sex. Almost all of us use the internet once a day, a thousand times a day. 66% of men in their 20s and 30s regularly look at pornography. We just need to recognize this. This is true inside and outside the church. And if you're thinking, oh man, you're a lady and you're thinking, man, those dudes get their act together. Most recent stats say that 34% of church-going women said they intentionally visit a porn site online regularly. 8% of total emails are pornographic. 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds receive sexually suggestive photos and messages. And if you're thinking out there, you're like, what's wrong with this younger generation? Check yourself a little bit. People now in their 20s are two and a half Less times, less likely to be, or more likely to be abstinent as Gen Xers were at their same age. So you have this sort of different terrain where people are moving more online and they're having less physical embodied relationships than they did a generation ago. Now on one level, we need to be honest. People have been having sex outside of marriage for a very long time. Right? Prostitution has been around, bars, hookup culture has been around. Versions of porn have been around for a very long time. What's really new in our cultural moment is that these changes are viewed as liberation. Freedom from oppression and freedom from moral prerogatives so that if you were described to the way of Jesus, if you describe to taking this seriously, the kingdom ethics as it relates to sexual desire, generally you are seen as behind or bigoted or backward. And the question becomes, what do we do in this cultural moment? Do we look to Jesus and his kingdom to shape our sexual ethics, to shape our sexual formation? Or do we just describe the, the culture around us? where sex is simply adult entertainment, where sexual desires are just desires that are meant to be met, just kind of like hunger? Or do we listen to Paul and do we flee from pornea? The truth is, how we answer this question actually comes in large part how we deal with the question of freedom, which is how Paul started his whole message. Because as Americans, right, we prize freedom. We want to be free to do what we want. Individual choice, authentic expression. We don't like people telling us what to do. Honestly, I get it. I don't like being told what to do. The truth is, this understanding is not a biblical understanding of freedom. Freedom in the Bible is redemption. God rescues us from the slavery to sin, sets us 
free so that we can serve and flourish in his kingdom. Right? It's not about annexing a small territory of our lives to God and then saying, okay, God, you're here, I get this part. And the truth is, sex, sexual desire, are an incredible training ground and testing ground for our allegiance because they're powerful. It's powerful, it's deeply connected to our personhood, in a culture that's trained most of us to think, right, that sex and sexuality is a way that we, don't, that we just sort of do whatever we want. That doesn't align with the kingdom in the way that we practice Jesus' way. So there's this tension, and we have this opportunity to choose which path we're going to take, our own way and the way of our culture that says, you do you, do whatever works for you, what feels right. Or do we submit our lives to Jesus? Do we have sort of allegiance to Him and His kingdom? Or right? is that true freedom? Paul tells us we're temples of the Holy Spirit. He tells us to glorify God in our bodies. He tells us how. Flee from pornea. The question I think before us is, are we going to lean into that invitation? Or are we going to like sidestep it, you know? A few things I just want to suggest practically. First is, um, one, I think you should talk to someone. Like, I think if anything in this message, whether it's about your body, specifically, whether it's about pornea and sexual immorality, whether it's about sex in general, talk to someone. I think especially when it comes to pornea, one of the things that happens is it's something that just stays hidden. Talk to someone. And I, and I say talk to someone, whether or not you think it is a bad thing or not, whether you think it is right or not, whether you think you're sort of rocking it or not, talk to someone. Expand the circle of discernment. One of the things I learned early on as I was trying to align my life with Jesus is just how blind I am and how incredibly self-deceptive I am. Man, I can convince myself that what I'm doing is okay, and I'm good at it. And one of the things that expanding the circle does is it just gives other eyes. And maybe they say nine times out of ten, people are like, you know, you're good. And every so often, they're like, probably should pay attention to that. Like, are you willing to expand the circle of discernment when it comes to your own body and how you glorify God with your body, whether it's related to pornea or something else? Two, we're going to do a fall class on sexuality. Aaron's going to be leading it. He's done it before. Uh, it's going to focus on sex, sexuality, gender, pornea, and we're going to really lean into how this conversation, conversation intersects with the LGBTQ community. And if you want sort of a deep, thorough, lean in community where you can discern with others, check it out. It's going to be in the fall. You have a few weeks, but still, put it on your calendars. And lastly, I just want to give you a couple of book options because maybe it would be helpful for you to read a little bit. Uh, there's a book called Loveology. So, Loveology, kind of like Theology, Loveology by John Mark Comer. Now, none of these books, I don't agree with everything in them, but there's a lot of really good stuff here. If you're curious and you're like, I don't know what I think about what Tony just said, read a book. Check it out. Two, there's another book called Pres by Preston Sprinkle called A People to Be Loved. This is specifically about uh, the church's conversation as it relates to homosexuality. It's a really good biblical take, super fair, uh, really good book. I would encourage you to read it. I want to invite the worship team back up. Uh, I'm going to move this carpet. Somehow I've made a wave in the carpet during this sermon. Uh, not sure how I did that. Pretty impressive, really. Uh, the connection between embodiment and the carpet. All right, so as we enter worship, I just want to create a little space for prayer and listening. So as you are sitting on the floor or going for a walk or sitting on a couch, I just invite you to use your body as a way to express your posture of prayer. So maybe that's kneeling. Maybe that's just putting your hands open like this. Maybe it's standing 
because you want to worship God right now. Maybe it's raising your hands and standing. And I know this might feel awkward in your home environment, but I think this is important. You're connecting your response and worship to your body. Maybe in this moment, as we've leaned into all these topics, you feel convicted. I invite you to get on your knees. Lay face down on the ground as a posture before God of God, I need your help. Come and help me. I'm helpless on my face in the ground. You are my Lord. Help me. However you respond, Holy Spirit, you say that you are inside of us. Reveal your presence to us. Whether we are on our knees and broken, whether we are standing and giving you glory, whether we are just open-handed to whatever your spirit would say, God, come. Come in the power of your presence. God, we just want to start with the fact that we are broken, broken creatures. We are not saviors. We are not creators. We are broken creatures, God. Our lives do not align with your kingdom. Help us. God, we just say, get rid of pretense. God, we say, get rid of the lies. The lies that oppress us as we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I am not okay when you, Jesus, made us good. God, we just pray that you would break the powers that hold us in powers, patterns of addiction, in patterns of self-hatred, in patterns of misogyny, in patterns as men where we just doubt our own manhood. God, we pray that you would break those chains that hold us. God, would we submit all of who we are to you. Remake us in your image, Jesus. Begin by making all things new in us. Come, Holy Spirit.